Audio Conversation, recorded April 17th, 2011. Hey, you're just about to listen to a one-hour interview that I did with Phil Imbrogno, and I first heard of Phil uh, well over a decade ago when I read Night Siege, which was a book that he authored with Dr. Alan J. Hynek. And it uh, the topic of the book is the very, very strange uh, flap that occurred in uh, the mid-80s through the mid-90s in the Hudson River Valley, a place that I was pretty intimate with when I was living back east. I spent a lot of time in a town called New Paltz. Phil calls the Hudson River Valley his home, and he is quite an impressive investigator. On one level, he is a true scientist. Uh, he's got a doctorate in science, and he is a very open-minded uh, researcher, of very capable of going into some of the deeper waters, into the, some of the more high, strange uh, realms. Uh, on my desk right now, I have two books, both of which are quite recent. One is called Files from the Edge, and the other one is called Ultra-Terrestrial Contact. They both came out within the last few years. He also just published a book called The Vengeful Gin with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and he is just about to publish a book on window areas or portals and I believe that's also with Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, which sounds extremely interesting I give the guy a ton of credit he is uh, very very capable of looking at the divergent outlying data and trying to make sense of it he doesn't seem to have a preconception of what the phenomena is or what it might be and uh, and he's very capable of of looking at really the weirdest stuff and I give him a lot of credit for that a lot of researchers won't touch this kind of material if there is a flaw to this interview it is just too darn short I had a great big long list of questions and I did not get to them linked in the show notes you'll find uh, a lot of links to other interviews other interviews that I consider great and um, I would recommend highly the conversation you're about to hear is just slightly less than an hour, and I feel like it's jam-packed with really good information. Please enjoy. Hello? Hello, is this Phil? Speaking. We spoke... Hey, Mike? Yes, we spoke about probably a little over a year ago about some stuff sure, that... Sure, I remember. Good. Good. Hey, um, in that time, I've started to do my own uh, interview series. Oh, Good. And I've been posting it online, and, and uh, it seems that the majority of the folks that listen or have uh, connected to the site are in some way or another, uh, you know, directly involved in the what would be the contact experience, you know, whatever that, that means. Okay. Great. Hey, um, you, there's really good interviews with you presently online uh, with the Jin talking with Rosemary Guiley. Right, that's all. That's the recent book. I've been very busy with those interviews, so no need to repeat that same info. But I would love to just delve into some of the more, um, the high strangeness as well as the contact experiences. Well, you ask the questions, I'll give you the answers. Great. And I just want to say uh, thanks so much for um, saying yes to the interview. No problem. Great. So so you started out uh, doing research in the 70s? Yeah, actually I did. Um, I started doing research in the 70s. However, my interest in the paranormal goes back to the 60s. So... And uh, with UFOs, and it continued uh, even while I was in the military. So my book, um, Files from the Edge, uh, deals with some of my military experiences while I'm over in Southeast Asia, tracking down on you know some legends and some stories that were 
you know, paranormal related and UFO related. But then in the 70s, you know, I really got involved in the UFO investigations. And, uh, and of course, in 1983 was, you can consider my big break, so to speak, when, you know, the Hudson Valley UFOs appeared in New York, and I was thrown right in the middle of it as a UFO investigator. And uh, from then on there, you know, it's all been, uh, I can say, uphill. Uh, more and more cases come into my attention, and uh, it's been like a roller coaster ride. Yeah, very much so. I, with, from my own set of experiences, there is that sort of a, a roller coaster ride aspect to the whole thing. When you started out, were you dealing with a, a mindset that would could be described as just a nuts and bolts or a, or an ETH kind of uh, focus? Oh yeah, with UFOs, I you know <clears throat> I was focused on the uh, the idea that they were nuts and bolts spaceships. And that explained the whole thing. I mean, it's an exciting concept to think about that. You know, alien visitors from another star system, you know, here studying the human race secretly and contacting certain individuals and, uh, and so on. I mean, who wouldn't be excited about something like that? But as, you know, time went on and more and more cases came to my attention, I realized there was a part of the UFO phenomena that was different more dark and um, something that seemed to be not physical, not nuts and bolts. And I began to realize that uh, the UFO situation, the UFO experience is incredibly complex and it can't be answered by uh, just one uh, theory. It can't be covered by just one idea. And uh, it's a complex phenomena that probably has a great diversity of uh, causes. I know this. Everyone seems to want to create like a unified field theory, like an all-encompassing one answer that will sum everything up in a, in a nice, tidy way. And, and I just don't see that happening. Uh, UFO, you know, human beings have a tendency to want to put everything in the nice, neat categories so they can understand them. That's why they name everything and classify everything and so on and so on. But, with you know, UFOs, we're dealing with something that's outside of our realm of consciousness and something that's so far beyond human, human nature and human understanding that, um, uh, you know, we just can't, can't, put one label on it and say it explains the whole thing. And, oh, what about these other cases that don't fit into this category? Well, for years, most UFO researchers just ignored them and thought they were just the products of overactive imaginations. But today, you know, it's a different story. People are beginning to see that um, it's a complex phenomena and, um, and it can't be explained very easily. Yeah, there, there's the uh, the UFO researchers would you know dismiss outright anyone who claimed to see entities at one point in history, um, and it wasn't that long ago. You, you know, then the actual abduction phenomena sprang into the scene, mostly with the Betty and Barney Hill story, and then sort of following up with uh, the publication of both uh, Bud Hopkins' book Missing Time and and then Whitley Strieber's book Communion. It sort of ushered in a new era of the research. 
and I, in a funny way, I almost sense that continuum, whatever we're on, is going to continue. I'm sure there are things that we, and I include myself in this in a way, um, you know, there's data points that are just so strange that I'm just, you know, either frightened to pursue them or uh, it's just human nature to ignore them. But I think those data points that are being dismissed even now are going to be accepted somewhere down the road. Uh, yeah, maybe they will, and maybe they won't. It depends upon, you know, the mentality of the the people investigating UFOs, and it also depends upon, you know, what's going on in the background that we don't under that we don't know that's being uh, investigated by not only our government but other governments of the world. I'm sure there is a a secret organization that's handling you know, the input of not only UFOs, but all paranormal phenomena. And, uh, and you know, the going back to what you said, yes, I mean, you know, back in the 60s, you know, it was pretty hard to accept the idea of UFOs uh, rather than, you know, claiming people having contact. I mean, in going back in the early 60s and in the 50s, people were ridiculed for it. Um, and plus, for good right, because you had a lot of people coming forward saying they've been to Venus, you know, and a lot of these, you know, uh, talk shows that were on at that time were shock talk shows, like the Joe Pine Show, the Alan Burke Show, and he used to have a lot of guests on there that claimed to be, you know, in contact with aliens, and most of them, you know, were laughed at by the audience, and that's the reason why they were brought on the show, to make it look ridiculous. Now, today, um, some think that um, those people who came forward, like Spaceship Ruthie and Andy the Mystic Barber and, and all of these people who claim to take, you know, flying saucer rides to Mars and Venus and so on, some people claim or think today, and it's possible, that uh, they were actually, you know, government plants. They were paid. They were actors to, to play these parts. And to make the UFO situation look so ridiculous, people would be ashamed to report and talk about anything they've seen. Now, today's a different story. More and more people are having encounters, and that's not really done anymore. Many of the stories have gotten more credible about the contact stories. But, you know, you still have, you know, a circus out there. In the 1980s, when the UFOs appeared over the Hudson Valley, which is, you know, the, the theme of my book, Night Siege, uh, which, you know, I wrote and investigated with J. Allen Hynek, um, we purposely kept out the contact stories that were coming to us at that time. Um, we had a lot of great data about credible people witnessing, you know, this, this enormous object that flew over the New York area at low altitude during rush hours, stopping traffic and so on. So Alan Hynek said to me, you know, uh, we can't put those other cases in a book or can't expose them to the media because the media would have a field day with them and it would make the other witnesses look less credible, and it would stop other people who've had experiences to come forward. And, you know, he was basically right back then. And I assume you and Dr. Hynek were working as a team. Were you taking those reports seriously, or were you kind of putting them in a gray basket? No, I was taking them seriously, but I wasn't really acting on them. And um, I had many discussions with him about um, it's all part of the phenomena. 
for example, I said, you know, even if it's just, you know, imaginary or these people are, you know, having um, uh, some kind of dream or some kind of hallucination or some type of fear that was induced after a UFO sighting, whether it's psychological or real, it's part of the phenomenon, the effect on human nature and should be explored. And he said, no way. He said, you can't make those cases public because the the media would have a field day with it. And uh, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, the idea of close encounters with UFOs was hard enough to believe and be accepted by the general public. So if you put the abduction or contact aspect into that, um, many you know people felt that back then it would make more of um, you know the old ideas of of all of these crazy claims come forward. And, and it's interesting because people have UFO sightings. Obviously, the thing in the Hudson Valley was some type of object. It was a ship of some sort. I mean, I mean, yet um, it definitely did not belong to this world. So if it was in the area, you might expect the inhabitants, the intelligence of this craft, to make contact with certain humans or abduct certain humans and families, which was happening. But, you know, this would not have been looked at as something serious. I mean, it's the same thing when people look at pictures of UFOs or other paranormal phenomena. If it's blurry, people think, hmm, yeah, maybe that's something. But if it's clear, people say, oh, that's got to be a fake. And I and I fall into that sometimes too, where where like if a report comes out or somebody's story is simply just too good to be true, uh, you know my skeptical red flags go up. So I do recognize that emotional knee jerk reaction of seeing the the super clear photograph and and then being very cautious. Well, that's true. You see, the the idea if a story comes forward that sounds too good, usually it is because. UFOs are like um, any other aspect of the paranormal. You know, you just don't really have enough information. There's not enough to capture, and there's not enough to study in order to make a definite conclusion as to, you know, what is going on. You can speculate, and speculation's good as long as it's controlled. But then again, you know, as I say, the UFO phenomenon is like a magician on the stage, and we're the children in the audience. We're never going to figure out how the magician does the tricks unless the magician takes us on stage and shows us how the trick is done. Otherwise, we're out of his reality. The magician's on a different reality on the stage. So are the UFO phenomena. We're in the audience. We're separate. And unless we get up on that stage and we're just shown how the trick is done... Well, we're never going to figure it out. You recently spoke on um, the Paracast, and uh, you and Chris O'Brien both talked about, uh, used the term vortex and window areas, and I was somewhat impressed that you used those those terms completely straight. Like, you, you, you both took that very seriously as a potential uh, solution, maybe not solution, but a key puzzle piece to the phenomena. And that's something that I've always heard whispered about is the, you know, vortex or a window area. Have you done any research on actually trying to find a uh, window area or trying to define it? Well, yes, I have. You know, at the, um, 
at the end of Dr. Hynek's uh, life before he passed over, I asked him, why do you think there was so much activity in the Hudson Valley? He just very calmly looked at me and then said, look for windows. He said, there are windows in the area, and you should study all the data you have and try to look for the windows. Now, the windows of Dr. Hynek were windows to another reality. Now, when people talk about vortexes, and, you know, a vortex is like, you know, a tornado or something, a little bit different than my idea of what a dimensional window would be. And people shy away from the idea of vortex, especially in UFOs, because it has a new age attachment to it. And uh, people say, oh, yeah, you know, these are these people who feel the vortexes and the energy and these beings of light coming from here and there and everywhere. So UFO researchers have a tendency to stay away from it. Yeah, so what I can't understand is that many UFO researchers claim that because it's not scientific. Uh, I have to tell these people, come on, people, you know, I have a doctorate in science, and there's no science in UFOs. I mean, put it that way. Science is, is a scientific method. You, you do experiments, you have a control, you compare your results, you come to hypotheses, and so on and so on from your data. The scientific method was invented to study physical phenomena in, in our known universe. We're dealing with something that's outside of our universe, so the scientific method breaks down considerably. So the idea of portals is all theoretical. Okay, portals or windows is all theoretical. And Dr. Hynek at the end of his life said to me he would be very disappointed if all UFOs turned out to be nothing more than somebody else's spaceships from another star system. He was sure that much of the phenomena emitted from what he called the parallel reality, and they enter our reality through these windows. Where do they come from? Well, they probably, you know, come from one of the multiple dimensions that are around us. This is not to say that I don't believe that all UFOs are caused by dimensional visitors. I think it's an important part of the UFO phenomena. Some of them perhaps do come from other star systems, and these are much, you know, lower, rarer sightings and encounters. But, yes, I have done extensive research in the idea of portals, and I've actually um, found the areas which are portals, and some of the information that I'm getting out of there right now is amazing. I, I actually put it together with Rosemary, who's been doing quite a bit of research with me, um, a book coming out in, in December called uh, Multidimensional Portals, A Search for the Origin of Paranormal Phenomena. Now, I actually devised a piece of equipment that could actually detect the opening and closing of a portal. You have to remember that some of these portals, when we think about them, we think about Stargate and the wormholes and so on and so on. We think about, you know, the... the sci-fi series sliders with that vortex opening and that window opening and they could jump right through it. Some of these some of these windows, some of these portals that open up may be the size of an atomic nucleus, but it's large enough to get in an electromagnetic wave 
in and out of it. So it's possible to pick up things from these other realities, and it's also possible to transmit into these other realities in certain areas where these portals open. And, you know, I have to go with the idea of um, these, the new theories in theoretical physics. If we look at string theory, we look at M3, which is basically the same thing. You know, we can get an idea how these other dimensions exist and how these portals form. Right now, it's all theory because it's not been proven. But in these equations that pop up over and over again, other dimensions keep on popping up in them. And there's no reason to assume that these other dimensions, these other spatial areas, and when we think about that, we have to think that these other dimensions are not magical spiritual places like some people identify them. These are actual physical areas that exist in a dimension that we can't see because we're locked into three dimensions in our space. These areas exist at right angles to right angles. There's another dimension there. In the room you're in, in the room I'm in, there's another space there which you can't turn to walk into. And um, every once in a while, something happens that connects the two, and things in that universe, things in that reality, are allowed to flow into ours, and sometimes we flow into theirs. So it could answer a great number of questions in the UFO field and the paranormal. But UFO investigators are so locked in their ideas that um, most of this is, um, you know, well beyond uh, most of their abilities to accept or to really understand why it does exist. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I think on, on some level, just by the mere fact that we are in this three-dimensional world, it's very difficult to wrap your mind around the concept of a higher reality, and sometimes there's very convenient ways to describe them and those go back to like mythology and folklore and where realms like heaven exist you know that would that would explain a lot you know where does a ghost live it may live in that realm that's just beyond us and i the term i like to use which is kind of a simplistic way to say it i like to say something is taking place behind the curtain that's an easy way for me to to wrap my mind around these uh, very challenging well it's, much, of- it's, it's very much like that and, uh, you know, if you can imagine that you're in a room and in the middle of the room it's divided by, let's say, a, a sheet of white um, linen or something, and uh, you really can't go through the other side of the room unless you rip the sheet or tear the sheet down. But if someone presses up against that sheet, you could see their outline. And this is how we, uh, we perceive a lot of things in our reality and our dimension Uh, from this other dimension. You know, um, I'm talking about especially things like shadow people and uh, visitations of some type of creatures which, you know, don't seem to be part of our reality, which, uh, you know, walk into bedrooms at night. They're behind this veil, this barrier between the dimensions, and they seem to have the ability to press up against it and observe us, and we only see them as vague outlines. So when you apply this principle to the UFO phenomena, it would really mean that we're not perceiving the UFO phenomena that's dimensional to its fullest extent. 
we're only perceiving part of it. So we're missing, you know, a great deal of the picture as to what these things are and uh, where what the real purpose is. Obviously, there's an intelligence behind it. Yeah, yeah. What about synchronicity in your life or in the life of the people who claim the contact experience? Have you seen a pattern involving like profound synchronicities? Well, people always say that there is, and um, you know, I have to say that you know, I think it's more than coincidence that I've been at the right place or the wrong place at the right time. And, uh, you know, it almost seems that something is orchestrating uh, for, for certain events to take place and certain experiences to take place. But, you know, I would say that there is something to it. And, um, you know, it's, and, and a lot of people are beginning to see that. From my direct experience, I've been at the receiving end of some very intense synchronistic events in my life, especially recently. And... Part of the thing that's happened since I've started this online website, as well as sharing my own experiences, encouraging other people to share theirs, and a lot of the the main focus on the interviews, as well as the, the writing that I've been doing, has been on the abduction phenomena. And more than one person who is immersed deeply in the abduction phenomena, which I am not, and I can't make that claim, so I'm speaking for them, they have said synchronicity is the language that they use to communicate, which which I have heard in one form or another uh, often from these people who claim the direct experience. Have you noticed, whether it has anything to do with synchronicity or not, have you noticed any sort of change or evolution in the data? Have patterns been changing in the last, uh, let's say, decade or so? Uh, Very slowly, I would say. Um, There is a change, because I, I don't know if it's really a change. More people are having experiences, so there's more information coming forward. So if that's a change, it's a change in itself. But, you know, the cases were so rare back in um, the early days that uh, we only got pieces of information. And now, since there's more experiences, uh, we're getting more information. So I don't know if there's been a change. But definitely, you know, we talk about the contact experience. There's, you know, many different aspects of it. And... It's hard to believe that there's just one type of intelligence responsible for it all. It seems like there's a multitude of intelligences, well, you know, a few of them, that are making contact at different levels for different purposes. Some of them aren't very nice, but um, some of them seem to be quite harmless. You know, it's interesting. I have spent some time sitting in the support groups where you sit in a circle and it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where, um, you know, people share their stories. And this is purely anecdotal, the data that I'm about to share here, but it seems about 60% of the people have blissful, magical experiences where it sounds very much like they're communing with angels. And then about 40% of the people have Uh, dark, malevolent, frightening stories where it seems like they're being traumatized by demons. And, uh, you know, those are simplistic terms that that have a lot of baggage to them, Um, but that's the way it seems to play out. And I don't understand the divergent stories. You know, shouldn't it be all one or the other? Is Is there something in the psychology of the individual, how they translate the the experience? Or is it are they interacting with uh, other entities with completely uh, divergent agendas? 
Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Remember, in an experience, a person's going to interpret it according to, number one, their culture, where they're raised in the, you know, the culture in the world, their background in society, their religious beliefs, their philosophical beliefs, and um, in their own, you know, uh, psychological makeup. So when they have an experience like that, they're going to interpret it accordingly. Now, most people, when they have an experience, they try to deal with it. Because in many of these experiences, the entities really don't give them much information. So the person is left to fill in the pieces, and they usually do that so they can feel more comfortable for what happened to them. And... Um, after a while, they will attribute some type of positive experience to it, so it will take away the fear that they were abducted or communicated with and had no control over the situation. And um, you know, after a while, these people feel that um, they've been specially chosen for this experience. Most cases like this, you know, the people think that, you know, they were selectively picked for one reason or another. I mean, I'll give you a famous case, but I won't say too much about it, of a person who claimed to be abducted. And his very early accounts is, are, um, you know, typical abduction. But now, getting into it, you know, he this person is saving the galaxy. I mean, you know, this sort of thing happens. Some people claim that they were angels. The entities, the beings, never identified themselves as angels, but the person was left to interpret that they were angelic in nature or the servants of God, and uh, it was a good experience. Then some people will have these terrifying experiences, and most of the time they're terrified because they had no control. They were abducted like an animal and tagged, and it was terrifying for them. And some people also have these experiences where, you know, they are in a terrifying experience. So we can assume from all of this that most of the, diver the diversity in the reports of abductions are from the person's own psychological makeup and educational background, philosophical background and so on. It's the person's, you know, person's makeup interpreting the experience according to how they were brought up and educated. And second, that there are different types of entities doing different things. So once again, we're faced with the problem. The whole experience is more complex than any one of us can ever begin to realize. And it's not just one group of individuals doing this. So it would be impossible to find out what's really going on in situations like this because, number one, the individuals report that most of their experiences are in a dreamlike state. Second, the entities don't give much information, and they seem to play around quite a bit by making sure that the individual is left with practically nothing, so no one would believe them. So it's like a double-edged sword. Yes, there's actually a claim, uh, and I, I'm drawing a blank on exactly where this came from, where 
uh, the abductee or the contactee, you know, literally asked the the entity. They said, you know, do you want us to believe? You know, us meaning humanity. Do you want us to believe in you? And the little alien entity replied, yes, but not too much, which was an interesting answer. And I think that's almost where we are, where where I think that there's a pop culture side of things where we can have uh, ghosts and aliens and things show up in our science fiction and in our scary movies and in our folklore. But it's it's greatly challenging to have those same storylines, those same plot elements show up in real life. Yeah, well, um, when people look at this, and even UFO investigators, to them it's not a reality. Okay? <clears throat> When people watch all of these reality shows on TV, paranormal things, looking for the paranormal, which they never find anything, um, or, 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 list, or looking at a documentary by UFO abductions or a movie that's based on so-called true stories of UFO abductions, or reading about UFO sightings, the population is interested, but basically down deep inside, the majority of the people don't believe it's real. And the same thing is for UFO investigators. You know, people who are involved with UFOs, you know, they've never had experiences. To them, it's not really a reality. And they're interested in all of these things, but, you know, deep and down inside, they don't believe. They want to believe, but they don't really believe until they have an experience themselves, of course. And getting back to that, you have to remember that, you know, Many people are in the UFO field for various reasons. Some of them is not for investigation. You know, there are quite a few people who um, would not have, you know, they wouldn't even be known if it wasn't for their involvement in UFOs. It's an open field. It's like anybody can get in there and make an impact and, you know, get their face on television or do other things and, and be an authority. And um, But deep inside... Many of these people, it's not a reality to them. It's something they do on the weekends or in their spare time because it's an interest of theirs. But you see, I've been doing this a long time. I've had experiences, and it's a very real phenomenon to me. And, um, you know, it's, it's like part of my life. It's a reality just like, you know, if I would go down the street and see the McDonald's there. I know these things are real. I know a lot of this stuff is happening. And, however, there are still people out there who are imaginary. They wish they've had experiences. So they convince themselves that they've had experiences. And um, this kind of, like, muddies the water somewhat. But through... In, through all the mess that's going on now especially, you know, there is a, an undercurrent of real data coming through. And uh, that's pretty exciting because I think as, as, the, as time goes on, once again, as it did probably some time ago, this other dimension, this other reality where most of the phenomena that we call paranormal emits from, is once again going to merge completely with our reality here. And that's going to be an interesting experience. 
And, and if you go to a UFO conference, you know, there are some doughy-eyed believers who say exactly what you just said about the merging between the two realities, and they pinpoint it exactly at, uh, you know, the solstice of 2012, which I don't quite believe, but um, that is, that has been accepted by, by a, I don't want to say a majority, but a, a certain, a population within the, the UFO believers. And believers, I, I, you know, put in all capital letters to describe these folks. Yeah, well, you know, 2012 is a good place to start. You know, I don't believe in exact dates. I don't think, you know, the universe uh, keeps uh, keeps a calendar, you know, like human beings. But um, it's a good place to start. There may be things happening starting 2012 and after that that will be um, more amazing. I mean, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, 1,500 years ago, People thought um, that things, that demons and trolls and elves and fairies and things like that, they thought they were all real. And today we think that, you know, oh, it was just the mythology of the times. Um, but the people back then, if you read some of these accounts, it sounds like our paranormal experiences of today, but only more intense. Perhaps at one time, a very long time ago, these two dimensions merged, and these creatures flowed readily between their world and ours, and walking down the street and seeing a troll or an elf or a fairy or something was a common experience back then. You know, this may happen again, and um, Obviously, like I said, what we call the paranormal today is very similar to what these people described 1,500, 1,200 years ago as uh, you know, an encounter with the supernatural. When, when dealing, and I've been dealing directly with a lot of people who claim the, the contact experience, one of the shared patterns that, that everyone seems to, to talk about is this overwhelming sense of urgency. And they all seem to articulate it in a similar way. It's not universal, but it seems very close to universal, people who share these stories. And it makes them a curious spokesman for, for like the, the, you know, trying to describe the abduction phenomena because they do come at it with such a profound sense of intensity that I could see it being very off-putting to, to the general public. One of the things that I've noticed when going to these conferences, and I have been going to them lately, and part of the reason I go is just less to sit in the audience and listen to the speakers on stage, but more to interact with the attendees. I find that some of them have very, very profound and interesting stories. And in the conference environment, you're allowed to be quite open and share these experiences. So I found that um, it's been rewarding for me. There is a very human experience uh, that's extremely challenging related to these phenomena. And I've found that um, uh, people are people who claim this phenomena are either deeply traumatized, or they take on a spiritual bend. And it's it's a very rare individual that can walk the fine line between those two. Yeah, well, that's true. And some people go overboard. I've talked to people who've had these experiences that just can't deal with them, and their whole lives has changed. Before the experience, they never thought about UFOs. They never thought about abductions. It happens to some nut on TV. Yet they have these experiences. They've been abducted. They can't handle the situation. Their life changes. Their family falls apart. They lose their jobs. They end up, you know, somewhere in in oblivion somewhere. And, um, you know, so, I mean, 
it has happened to people that it has changed their lives completely. Now, some people end up in a sp- changing spiritually. They change spiritually, and they, they, they believe that they've been contacted by angels, and they're true believers, and they go around saying they're here to save us, and so on. But you see, in these two examples, one person could not deal with the phenomena, so his life was destroyed mentally and, and, and financially and uh, socially. And the other person sort of embraced the phenomena and accepted it and started thinking that they were specially chosen and it was a spiritual experience and, and so on. They're saving the universe and so on and so on. And even if they're not, this is how they're dealing with it. And also, people who are involved investigating these people or researching these people or working with them, to them, it's like a religion almost at times. Like if you go and argue whether, you know, your religious beliefs are, are right or wrong than someone else's, you'll get a big argument back and forth. People are hot on religion. You know, whether you know, Islam is the best or Christianity or Judaism or so on, or Buddhism and so on. You get into UFO fields, there are people involved with UFOs who look at it, they're intensely into it like a religion. If you try to say that some type of case, well, you have doubts about it or so on and so on, you, you probably get attacked as if they're defending some type of religious belief. And I've seen this quite a bit, and it's happened to me a number of times. I mean, you know, when I made a, a statement or opinion on a particular case, I mean, I was, you know, verbally attacked like I was insulting somebody's religion. Yeah, and, and religion is, a, is that is the perfect vocabulary word for what, what is emerging, especially, you know, the doughy-eyed believers that show up at these conferences. You know, oftentimes they have very, very real experiences, and they may be bringing something to the table by sharing these experiences. They may tell a story that, that will, um, you know, be a puzzle piece that can be added to the overall data pool. You know, oftentimes, and this is, this is me sort of editorializing here, you know, their new age vocabulary can be a little bit uh, off-putting. Uh, yeah, in some cases, that's true. Um, I guess it depends upon where you go also. There are many different types of conferences that attract certain types of people. And you have, when you, when you go to these, you see people who've had experiences that are just there because they're trying to get more information. You have people who have had experiences that are going there because they feel they have to be part of it all now. It's part of their life. You have people going who wish they had experiences and are trying to claim that they did have experiences and they're, you know, should have all the attention. Then you have the people going who who think the government's behind the whole thing and they're watching everybody as if everybody's government agents. Uh, and then you have the uh, the speakers who are going People are attending because they want to speak because they want attention. And then you have another uh, group of people going there because they want to present information to the public and get some of the information out that they have been researching in to, uh, to, to, to shed some light and to put some more pieces of the puzzle together. But that sixth category is far in between these days. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Here's a question. 
in your research, has any uh, anomalous stuff come up with owls? Yeah. I mean, of course. That's strange because people would say that um, they would have this abduction experience, this UFO experience, and owls would be in the dreams. And now if you look at an owl's face with the big eyes and the round face, it looks very much like the aliens that we're describing today. Um, also, in some paranormal experiences, people hear sounds that sound like owls uh, in, in their experiences. So, yeah, the, uh, I just had one young lady I was talking to not too long ago, and uh, she was like, you know, down in her living room, and she looks out the window and sees this object, this UFO landing on her lawn, and, and she passes out. And then during the passing out, she, has, she wakes up and she re recalls owls standing by the window looking in on her with the yellow slanted eyes and the big round eyes and the oval heads. And later on, of course, these are interpretations that these were actually alien beings, but the mind was trying to understand what it was seeing, so it identified the alien faces as owls in the translation inside the brain. And there's some thought that the, that the entities themselves will use some sort of uh, telepathic powers to instill that owl memory in them. You know, I've actually heard talk to people who've said, you know, stories that they've actually seen Jesus, and it felt like it was a projection. Uh, yeah, you know, one aspect of the UFO phenomenon, it seems that um, in the contactee situation, that the entities do have control over the mind. So this leads you to, control, to, to maybe consider that people who claim to be put on laboratory tables or some type of exam tables or being taken aboard a spaceship, are they really being taken aboard a spaceship or is something else happening to them? And this image was just put into their mind so that they could, um, they could, they could not identify who was contacting them. And they go and wake up and they say, I've been abducted by aliens when they weren't. So this is what I mean about we really don't have enough information to determine really what's going on because most of the information coming forward could be very misleading and not the true nature of the contact. And that's something that I often am curious about is that where's the line between, um, you know, where the projection, the theatrical projection begins and ends? You know, couldn't the entire thing, couldn't the whole phenomena be some sort of projection? Oh, yes. I mean, there are people, I believe that contact occurs in dreams. I mean, and that while you're asleep in your bed, the contact experience may take place. And you make up, may make up, wake up and say, oh, was that an incredible dream about the alien? And I was aboard the ship. Well, maybe something really happened, but that's not exactly what happened. A contact experience was made, but it gave it the, the illusion or the projection that you were in a spaceship was put into your mind. And of course, when you wake up and you try to talk about the story, no one's going to listen to you. Even a close friend may laugh at you. So people will keep that information to themselves. And the, pe the number of people who actually come forward with experiences like this, the percentage is very small to the people actually having the experience. For example, last year I spoke at the, um, the Exeter UFO Festival up in New Hampshire. 
And, you know, I asked the audience, how many of you have had a UFO sighting or thought you had a UFO sighting or contact experience, something that dealing with UFOs? And practically the entire audience raises their hand. Then I said, how many of you have actually reported it to, like, you know, a researcher or the police or somebody like that of, you know, that would listen to you? You know, all the hands went down except for six people at an audience of about 300. So the number of people out there that have had contact experiences is great in comparison to the number of people the number of people have actually reported that we see at these, you know, support groups that we uh, read about in books that we see on TV or in the news is actually a very small percentage of the total number of people being contacted in the world. And that, that I think, is just a, a factor of the, you know, like there, there is no place to really report these. I mean, where do you report them? You know, if you report them to the sheriff's department, what happens? You know, something gets put in a, in a file cabinet. I mean, unlike if you had a, you know, like in your, your community, if you had a report of cholera, you know, that would get logged and, and placed into the Center for Disease Control, and they would, they would very carefully monitor those numbers where there's no there's no forum at all to monitor the uh, the data that comes in and out yeah of course you know uh and and then again if you, you there's really no one collecting this information except you know some private ufo researchers and more information is coming forward now because of email and, and I agree. I think that the, that the Internet has changed the entire paradigm in a way. And, and I have my own set of experiences, which, you know, seem to maybe sort of indicate some sort of UFO contact experience. It's very difficult for me to say. But um, I found that, that I am not being ridiculed. I'm not being laughed at the way I probably would have 20 years ago. And I think that the uh, information system that we call the Internet, you know, is responsible for that change in our societal outlook on this phenomenon. And it's also, too, because like a new generation, um, even though, you know, your grandparents may still think this is all ridiculous, your parents may even think this is all ridiculous. But you see, there's a new generation that is coming forward that has been conditioned to the idea of aliens and the idea of contact. I mean, um, you know, I'm an educator. I've been an educator for 30 years. Kids walking around with aliens on their lunchboxes, aliens on their pencils, aliens on their T-shirts. That, I mean, there's just a, was a movie in the theater called Paul about an alien. And all the kids went to go see it. You see, now, years ago, if those aliens appeared, it would have caused terror in our, in our grandparents' generation. However, in this generation here, they've been so conditioned to accept that look that when these aliens appear like that, they're not going to be afraid of them. Potentially, yeah. I mean, you know, the reality has a funny way of, of being much more shocking than fiction, but I agree that there has been a profound change in the cross-section of the population. You mentioned earlier that you had your own experience, your own you kind of hinted set of experiences. What, um, what uh, have you experienced that felt profound in your, in your research, you know, you personally? Uh, well, you know, um, I had seen the Hudson Valley UFO three times. And that's you're saying when you say that you you're defining the big triangular craft that yeah. was you know yeah. reported over and over and over again. Yeah, I had seen it three times, so there's no doubt in my mind 
that it exists and that, uh, you know, it's something that's, you know, non-conventional, non-conventional and, and, and not explainable in, in, let's say, you know, earthly terms. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of other paranormal experiences that are, you know, that are documented in my book that I'm talking about and witness things, you know, during my investigations. And the thing is, if you're out there, I mean, if you're out there, and you, if you're out there over the last 30 years as much as I have, and, you know, you go pounding for these cases and you, you do all these uh, things, sooner or later you're going to start seeing things and experiencing phenomena. And I have. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm convinced of the reality of all this. So this is why when I write in my books or when I talk about it, I talk with authority because, you know, I've experienced, I, I know these things exist out there because I've seen the results of them. And uh, unlike, you know, many people who have not had experiences, there's always some doubt in their mind, but there's no doubt in my mind that it does exist. And I would say that there's no doubt in my mind that something profound is going on, and, and the thing that I'm perfectly challenged by is, is trying to define it. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the secret right there, to try to find out what's going on and understand it. You see... I think a lot of people out there doing independent research have pieces of a puzzle, and they're trying to get an entire picture of what the puzzle is by looking at just one small piece. And you really have to get together and put those pieces together and see what the picture represents. But um, with all the egos out there and, and so on and so on, and uh, I, don't, I don't see that happening in the near future. What I would like to see is that... Um, someone, some philanthropist comes forward with millions and millions of dollars and puts together a team of researchers from many different fields and said, okay, you got five years to go out there and study UFOs and paranormal phenomena. You practically have unlimited resources. At the end of five years, you know, you're going to publish uh, a big book, a report about what you've done. And, you know, with all the talent that's out there, that's disjointed, and if it's all pulled together, um, that would probably be the only way that we can actually shed some light on these experiences and determine if it's, you know, what's real and what's not real. Unless, of course, you know, the United States government and the governments of the world, you know, come clean and tell us what's on their mind, what they have. And that doesn't seem to be happening. So. Yeah, and I think whatever's going on, it's being controlled by them. And, you know, whatever them is, is, is a, you know, is a slippery proposition to try to define. But I feel like it's, the, you know, the ball is in their court. If they want disclosure, which is the catchphrase that I, that I cringe a little bit when I hear that term, but um, if they want disclosure, it's going to happen on their terms and their terms alone. And then we are going to be uh, simply responding to whatever they uh, create as a disclosure event. Well, that's true. You know, I don't like the word disclosure myself. And um, it is a hot uh, button term. Yet yeah, it's got it's yeah, got, it's got a lot of so. baggage associated with it. You know, I don't think there's going to be much information being released by. And when I say the government, there's there's one small group in the government that probably deals with it that knows everything. Maybe a one or two or three powerful congressmen. But besides that, nobody, you know, 
probably even the president himself doesn't know what's going on. So, you know, we're just left with a bunch of people who, um, who have all the secrets and all the ideas and all the resources to study this stuff. And, and you know, and, and the average citizen who's having these experiences are left in the dark. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll say that those average citizens are are dealing with something, you know, the, especially the people who are dealing with the direct contact experience are dealing with something potentially very challenging. So it's sad that these people are having to deal with something so emotionally challenging and then being left adrift societally. That's true. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. You're welcome, Mike. Yeah, I would at some point love to follow up on this a little more. Sure. And, Great. Okay. Have a wonderful afternoon. Okay, take it easy. Bye now. Bye. Okay, follow up here at the end. Uh, That guy, Phil, is one impressive dude. Uh, I can't quite uh, fathom, you know, how much actual field research the guy's done. Every every time I, like, open a book or hear him talk, he tells me something completely new that I never heard before. Uh, the the one flaw of this whole thing is that it was too short. Usually my interviews run about two hours, and I and I really feel that that amount of time, about two hours, is what's required to really get inside a story or or to really uh, fully flesh something out. So I was disappointed when Phil told me that he only had about an hour to spare, but at the same time I, I feel like I made pretty good use of that hour. Uh, I've said this before. I'll say it here again. I feel like I am a lousy interviewer but a pretty good conversationalist. And um, there are a bunch of questions I wanted to ask him. Uh, one of them, what, you know, I'll, I'll just read through the questions here. Um, do you know Ann Eller? And what do you, what's your take on her claims that Heineck had his own set of abduction experiences? There's a author named Ann Eller. She wrote a book a few years ago. And in that book, um, she comes forward with her own abduction experiences, and she talks about her time as working as a secretary with Dr. Alan Hynek. And she says she was with him during the time he was in the throes of cancer, and uh, she spent time with him while he was dying. And she claims that he said that he had his own set of abduction experiences, which I find very interesting. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. Uh, It's certainly a a strong claim, and I would love to get his take on it. I also wanted to get his take on Whitley Strieber. Now, I've met Whitley Strieber a few times. I'm very intimate with all his uh, books and his claims, and I understand the reason that he's he's such a polarizing figure in the UFO community. His claims are so intense that I just feel it, it must be overwhelming for someone to try to make sense of it. That said... Boy, the guy is a passionate character, and I would love to get Phil and Brogno's take on that, specifically because uh, Whitley Strieber was living in the Hudson River Valley during the uh, the height of that, that whole flap that he'd been re- researching. I have also heard Phil talk about channeling and how channeling is part of the phenomena, though he is more skeptical than I am, probably, is, as far as the, the channeling as a byproduct of the contact experience. I've just met so many people who claim to be able to channel and then will trace it back directly to their own close encounter experiences. And I've heard it so many times that I'm, that I'm just, uh, uh, it just feels like an important part of the phenomena. You may be able to dismiss the actual information that comes through the, the channelers, and that may be wise, 
but I do know that uh, Phil has looked into that that exact thing. I also wanted to ask him about orbs, uh, you know, the, the orbs that show up in photographs. I've heard him talk about orbs in, a, in an offhanded way, and it sounds like he's treating them seriously as part of the phenomena, but I feel like orbs can very easily be dismissed as just little dust particles in front of a flash on a digital camera. That said, I have also seen orbs show up in a way that strikes me as more than mere coincidence. So I do not have a deep insight into what they might be, though I am certainly open-minded to the possibilities that there's more going on to the phenomena than just little dust particles. Uh, at the end of the interview there, you hear me asking him, uh, gee, I'd sure like to do a follow-up, and please believe me, I am most eager to follow up on some of the questions I've just shared here. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.